Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women get to the root cause of their period problems and hormonal imbalances. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my new company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Kaylin Marco, to our show today. Kaylin is the founder and CEO of Jiggy, a brand that supports emerging female artists by turning their art into exciting jigsaw puzzles that are worth framing. Kaylin's fondness for jigsaw puzzles started when she was looking for a way to unwind after a long day of work. She was the first employee at the well-known digital media company, The Skim, and was managing everything from their brand ambassador program, community building, to their grassroots marketing. As one might expect with early stage startups, work can be all encompassing and exhausting. And Kaylin discovered that completing jigsaw puzzles helped reduce her stress and was the perfect nightly meditation for her. After discovering her newfound love of puzzling, Kaylin realized that many of the puzzle designs were outdated and that there was an opportunity to make something beautiful. Kaylin launched Jiggy in November 2019 and was able to navigate the pandemic challenges that hit her only a few months in and grow the business to 1.6 million in sales within the first nine months. Kaylin was also featured on Shark Take and secured $500,000 from billionaire Mark Cuban. We'll chat with Kaylin about how she built the confidence to turn her hobby into a real business, how she navigated the entire manufacturing process, especially being a first-time founder building a product-based business and the many lessons she learned along the way building and scaling a company as a one-woman show during the pandemic. Welcome to the show, Kaylin. Thanks so much, Yasmin. I'm excited to be here. Well, I saw you on Shark Tank last year and I was so impressed by the business you built during COVID. And I just thought you'd be the perfect guest for our podcast because so much of your story is incredibly relatable. So I cannot wait to jump in. Thanks. I'm excited. So on the podcast, we always love to start from the beginning. You know, I know you grew up in Pasadena, California, a little bit, you know, not too far from me. And both of your parents were accountants and you actually went to college at Barnard. And I feel like that was the first time you really dived deep into your interest in entrepreneurship, but it wasn't necessarily the first path you took when you graduated. So I'd love to hear, you know, what was going through your mind then? And how did you think about the first job that you had early in your career? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm Southern Californian and came out to Barnard. I was really looking for kind of liberal arts, kind of traditional education and humanities focused and and wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I was pre-law, studied, majored in political science, thought, you know, was studying for the LSAT and hadn't taken it yet. So wasn't ready to apply for law school. And so when I was in my senior year and thinking about what was next, I thought about consulting. You know, this was back mid 2000s. And I feel like finance consulting was like (laughs) the sexy path, especially here in New York, you know, on-campus recruiting at Columbia Barnard, where it was all kind of finance and consulting. And so 
I ended up going through, you know, the case interviews and doing management consulting. And I actually think in retrospect, it is kind of the perfect first job in that the whole idea is to teach you like how to think and how to be analytical and also how to be client facing. And so how to be articulate and confident and have presence in a room. And so I think for just entering the workforce and so much of your first job, I think is just learning like how to be, you know, an adult employee. (laughs) And so I think consulting was, was really kind of perfect for that. Absolutely. And I know you were you were doing management consulting at IBM and you were there for about a year and a half. And at some point you were yearning for something different and you were ready to take on more responsibility. What I love so much about this stage in your career is you ended up coming across an incredible opportunity at the skim. But take us back to that time and how you really got in front of the founders, because this story, I feel like so many people who are looking to make a transition can really implement this in their life today. Yeah. It is such an interesting kind of age and time in your career when you're a couple years in and you have some experience under your belt. But for me, kind of hit this point of wanting more and wanting to feel more impact of my work and more ownership and was just kind of ready to step up to the plate. And so I started thinking about what was next. And one thing that I knew... I wanted was a a company and a brand and a mission that I identified with and hopefully that I was actually a user of. So I kind of did this exercise and just went through my day-to-day life being very intentional about keeping track of all the brands I interacted with. So, you know, I'd wake up and I'd switch from coffee and I was, you know, doing matcha. Okay. Like there were a few matcha brands and then I did all the boutique like fitness crazes in New York. So dance cardio and cycling. And I was like, okay, any of those, like would I want to be on the inside of that? And part of my morning routine was reading the skim. And I had been signed up very early on. They launched the newsletter in 2012. And it was something I read every morning. And I found myself, you know, forwarding it to friends and and just kind of laughing to myself on the subway on my commute. And it was just such an organic, you know, the position I was coming from as a reader, as a user. And then given my political science background and and then consulting, I was like, maybe there's there's actually something I can sink my teeth into there. And so I think really going through that exercise of just, I think it's such an, an interesting value proposition to come to a company, especially an early startup as a user and be able to say, I bring this point of view, you know, of your community. And so that was kind of the approach I took. And then it was just a cold email. I love it. Now with social media and everything, I still think the power of just like a strong, cold email, I hope that it's not lost and that people are still just putting themselves out there in that way. But yeah, I I cold emailed. I said pretty much that I'm a reader. This is what I love about it. This is also the opportunity I see that you're not doing yet. And I think I could come help you do it. 
Oh my goodness. I love this because I'm a big fan of the cold, thoughtful email. <laughs> I think a lot of this podcast was started from that. And, you know, if you have a passion around whether it's a person you're reaching out to or a brand, it really resonates in the email if you're able to articulate it. So I completely agree with that. So you met with the founders, you ended up being, I believe you were the first employee, right? So there's so much to talk about there, but you know, what was it like being in such a high growth startup? Because I've been there before. I wasn't the first, but the sixth employee, there's a lot going on. So take us back to that moment because on paper, it looks amazing, but I'm sure it wasn't easy at all. It was definitely some whiplash coming (laughs) from, you know, especially IBM, like maybe as corporate as it gets to just in terms of the, the environment and the pace And, you know, the level of kind of ownership and responsibility, I think to me, that's one of the most addicting things now about being there so early and being a part of a startup is, you know, you are never told stay in your lane. That's not your job. Like if there's an opportunity, if there's a gap, if there's something to do, then by all means kind of go for it and just the pace of creation and innovating. And, you know, you have an idea, try it tomorrow. How did it go? And, you know tweak it, try it again. And I've just found that such an exciting environment to be a part of. But to your point, it was also quite stressful and all-consuming. And I think of it now just so fondly of like the glory days of this early company. But you know, at the time, we were all just figuring it out. The co-founders were a couple years older than me, basically became CEOs overnight. And so we were all just kind of winging it in, in a lot of ways, which, you know, led for growing pains and having to really stop at times and be super intentional about what the building the business and also building internally the culture, you know, when it's three people, the culture is kind of just like you and your personality and that, you know, and so having to be really intentional about those things, but it was the best kind of learning curve and just sandbox to try, try new things, throw it at the wall, see what sticks and just a really rich environment. And they will say, I will say they hired incredibly well. So that first year we ended with eight employees. And then the next year I think was around 20 and just everyone that I got to work with and learn from there was really incredible kind of experts in their fields. So love being a part of the team in the early growth, but yes, joined them as their first employee right after the seed round and then stayed four years until after the series B. And so those, I mean, seed to B is like really the meaty, super creative, super high growth. And so that is eventually where the idea for Jiggy actually came from of just being so consumed with screen time all day, every day, and the kind of the tech fatigue that ended up coming from, I think, now they're very familiar conversations of burnout and just what that pace will do. But this was like 2012, 13, 14. And so we were just kind of starting to talk about self-care and and the burnout generation and how we combat that. 
Absolutely. And we'll dig into Jiggy in a bit, but there's one thing I want to underscore on what you mentioned. You know, when you're behind the scenes at a startup, especially so early stage, you realize like everybody's winging it, right? The founders don't know what they're doing. And that's not a bad thing, but it just shows, you know, it's about trying something, pivoting, really understanding what you're bringing to life. And I think that's important because I was super intimidated before I started my own business. And when I was working for someone else, I was like, wow, this is a second time founder. We've raised over 15 million. They're still figuring it out. So I'd love to hear, did you have that same feelings and did it give you the confidence to eventually start your own business? 100%. I think it's so easy if you're looking from the outside to kind of think, you know, oh, they must have done it before, had some skill set I don't have, you know, there must be some like secret or silver bullet that got them there. And I think once you're on the inside seeing it and you're like, oh, wow, like, yeah, we're really just figuring it out. And I think one, being a part of the company, actually being there on the inside and even some of in the past few years, podcasts like these, you know, the first big one, how I built this. I remember listening to those and I was like, I appreciated that they were doing a similar thing of this, just demystifying these early days and what it takes and that the consistencies there were just like, one foot in front of the other. Like, what was the next hurdle? Okay, let's figure that one out. What was the next? And I think there's sometimes this survivor bias, you know, when a company is successful that, oh, they must have known it was going to be all along. <laughs> like, I can tell you, we definitely did not have moments of like, is this going to work? Yeah. <laughs> no, will this? And then sometimes it didn't. And then you move on and then the next one hits. And so it's like, Of course they knew it was going to hit, but everything to try to get, we tried to get up to that point is sometimes forgotten, but I think it's a very good point you make of, yeah, once you've seen kind of your people you look up to also just winging it, then I think there's definitely more of a comfort level with, with taking that leap yourself. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. 
Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds, freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now, anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening listening. And now let's get back to the show. You touched upon, you know, how you're managing the stress at the time. And, you know, that was your first foray into working with puzzles because it was the first time you weren't necessarily always touching tech and it was a good mental break for you. So tell me more about how the idea of Jiggy came to life, because it really wasn't until a few years later where you ended up going all in. So talk to us a little bit about that moment in your life. Yeah. So it was... 2014. And I was in my first kind of full year at the skim and it wasn't extreme burnout. It was just, I wanted to be more mindful about how I was kind of signing off for the days and I'd be on my computer and phone all day and then get home and turn on the TV. And I was like, wait, this is more of the, you know, my little screen, medium screen, big screen, like it's all the same. And so it was right when like headspace, you know, everyone was kind of talking about meditation. I tried traditional meditation, yoga, and nothing totally just turned off and and kind of quieted my brain. And I had a puzzle, you know, I had done puzzles as a kid, but not really in my adult life. And then I had a puzzle kind of lying around just a stack of board games and cards and ended up somewhat randomly just picking it up and starting to play around. And it just clicked immediately. It was, I found it really stress relieving and kind of in a good way, just totally sucked me in and had this like mental escapism where I'm as a chronic multitasker, always notifications on ping, ping, ping. And it really just kind of centered and gave me kind of tunnel vision of the task at hand. And of course, you know, just doing something just very tactile and, you know, there are studies connecting it with improved memory and decreased dementia and spatial recognition and all of these just kind of brain exercise and health. And so it totally clicked. And I started doing I got through about a thousand piece puzzle every week. Oh, wow. I do it every night before bed for, you know, 30, 45 minutes. I'd have tea, robe, do my puzzle. 
So I was constantly buying more. I would go online. There was a toy store on my walk home and all the ones I could find were, you know, grandma's puzzles, like cheesy stock photography. And you spend eight, 10, 12 hours with this image, you know, literally studying every detail. And so I had done, there was like three in a row where I was just like, what is this? One was like puppies jumping out of a basket, you know, like cute, but just like to it sitting in a meadow or something. And then the next one was like vintage candy wrappers. And then the, finally I was doing one of fishing tackle, just like an antique picture of fishing tackle splayed over a table. And I was on like my 10th hour of staring at this. And I was like, you know what? These could be so much more beautiful, so much more compelling. These 10 hours spent studying every detail could be really enjoyable if I connected with the image. And so really that was kind of the seed seedling of the idea planted of just what would a beautiful puzzle look like? How would that change the experience? And so I started thinking on it just here and there. I started a folder in iPhotos on my phone of just, you know, if I was out and saw art or on Instagram, saw a design that I thought would be fun to puzzle, I just would put it in this folder. And then my mom actually growing up in LA, she worked in arts education and nonprofits. So I was always just kind of surrounded by the LA art community and saw representation across gender, how it hard it was to support yourself and make a living off your work. So I was like, wait a minute, I'm thinking about this idea of a product that essentially is a platform, you know, for a design that needs to be printed on it. So what if I kind of merge these two and use real art by emerging artists and do profit sharing and help them, you know, monetize their work. And so that was kind of where it clicked. And then I ended up leaving the skim and we're starting to work on it in 2018. Got it. Okay. So you, you, the idea somewhat came about when you were working at skim, because I know you left 2017. So you had a bit of a gap year from 2017 to when you launched, were you doing different jobs? How were you supporting yourself when you were getting the business off the ground? Cause it seems like it was still in its infancy stage at that time. Yeah, it was. And I started doing kind of just the foundational, you know, getting incorporating, getting the domain, you know, that kind of stuff. And I was consulting on the side. So after my skim experience, I consulted with some media companies and other startups around largely audience development. With the Skim, I launched our Skim Ambassador program, which is a big brand ambassador initiative. So a lot of kind of grassroots marketing and growth. And so did that while I was also working on Jiggy and then ultimately launched. And, and really that was because, you know, I think if I had gone the fundraising route earlier, but I decided that I really wanted to bootstrap it and to do it myself and do it the way I wanted to. And so decided to just go for it on my own. And so certainly consulting helped, you know, kind of subsidize the early days of developing the product. Yes. And I know your background is all around marketing and growth and you really tapped into that at the skim. So clearly creating a puzzle is there's so much manufacturing evolved on that end. And, you know, I'm sure there's so much that you had to learn, but 
What were your initial steps in terms of outside of incorporating and getting the basics done with the corporate structure? How did you find the right manufacturer? What were those early steps that you took at that stage? Yeah, the whole, I mean, again, coming from the skim, which, you know, media, all digital, making the product was certainly the steepest learning curve for launching Jiggy. I had this idea in my mind, but turning it into a factory ready CAD file, you know, I was like, oh. And so really just one step at a time, I found a product designer on LinkedIn who went to the School of Visual Arts here in New York. And, you know, we met in person. I told her what I was envisioning. We worked together on the design and all of the components, the idea for the puzzle glue. So because each one is, you know, the whole idea is there are these real pieces of art by these emerging artists. For me, when I finished a puzzle, when I was doing them every week, I was like, all right, what do I do? You know, what now? I was too sentimental to just tear it apart right away and put it back in the box. So I'd kind of just leave it out on the, you know, the coffee table or something. And so the idea with Jiggy, given that they were, were real pieces of art, we decided to include puzzle glue so you could keep it when you were done and frame it or display it as an art print. So, you know, working on sourcing that. And I think that's where just a lot of problem solving, creativity. And then I was like, all right, no one's selling puzzle glue, you know, packaged and done the way I want it. So like the tube, what would that be? Well, I don't want to use plastic. So what's a sustainable material? Let's use aluminum. What are other aluminum tubes, you know, doing research? Oh, there's this hair cream company that, you know, they market it for hair cream, but it's essentially an aluminum squeeze tube. So like, could that work? Let's reach out to them oh, their minimum order quantity is 300,000 <laughs> units. I don't need that. You know, Okay, what could we negotiate with them? And next time you do a large run, could you just tack ours on to the end and do it? You know, And so really just how to problem solve each step of the way. But yeah, the manufacturing world and freight logistics, warehousing, all of that. From what I found, I kept looking for like, shortcuts or, or what's the quick and easy answer. And it was really just, that's one that it just takes really going through the motions, doing the diligence. There aren't a ton of quick answers that I found, but there are a lot of resources out there. And that I think is one thing that if you're, especially if you're doing something yourself and bootstrapping, like no ego about asking for help, raising your hand, putting asks out to your network and letting people kind of be extensions of your team when you're doing things so small and scrappy. I mean, that resonates with me too. Never was in the world of creating a physical product and it definitely is a big learning curve. And I love how you mentioned just how much you would do research and outreach, right? A lot of people are afraid to even take that first step, but even it's like talking to a company who might be doing it or reaching out to, I spoke to hundreds of manufacturers, worked with one, it didn't work out. I had to learn, pivot. So I've talked to so many people. I'm sure you've had very similar experiences, but it is just going through the motions, asking questions, learning. And one thing that I really loved about what you've talked about in another interview is when you had this idea, you weren't afraid to talk about it. I think sometimes people are wanting to keep that close to them, are scared someone's going to take it away. But I have felt that if anything, people are willing to help you if you talk to the right community. So I'd love to get your perspective on that because I think that can really impact anyone starting a business today. 
Yeah, I think that's so true. And that was something that I kind of had to unlearn in that, you know, a lot of the kind of the wisdom I was hearing when I was thinking about starting it is NDA everyone up and make sure that you're being very kind of selective with sharing your idea. And I think if there's really some kind of trade secret or, you know, maybe there's a time and place for that, depending on what you're trying to do. But for me, I was like, I want people to help feed my energy, give me feedback, you know, help me create this momentum. And you just never know what's, what's going to lead to, you know, I can't even count how many like, Oh, I know someone who's works in toys and they probably know this or someone who works in books and maybe there's overlap with the book club community and puzzle lovers. And could you do something there? And just so many things, especially as a solo founder, where I don't have a co-founder that like we bounce around ideas all day or, and so really having people who help just kind of open my mind to, to ideas and just energy. I think that's the biggest thing in the in the early days too of it could have been easy to just kind of think on it and keep tinkering and not really. And every time I shared it and got that, just like, Whoa, I'd buy that. I'm like, all right, then (laughs) I guess I need to make it. So you'll buy it. And getting that just feedback was so important to just helping push it forward and really actually helping build resources and introductions and network and all of that. So I'm all for, you know, sharing with with anyone who will listen <laughs> as early as possible and letting that kind of help shape your your journey. Yes. And that momentum is, like you said, so important in the early days because you can just sit there and like you said, think about the idea for years and not get to anywhere. But as you speak to more people, building that energy and the momentum really helps push you forward. So it's something I always try to think about, like, how do I continuously incorporate that in my life? Whether it's speaking to someone on your team, being around other entrepreneurs, talking to people about your business, it just hypes you up to take the next step. So I love your explanation of that. And so you ended up launching November, 2019, you guys grew quite a bit. I think in the first nine months, I mean, for a solo founder, I think you hit 1.6 million in revenue, which is incredible. Like, congratulations. That's amazing. I want to dig a little bit deeper in that. You know, when you were launching, you were bootstrapped. How did you really gain awareness in those early days? Were there certain things that worked, certain things that didn't work? I'd love for you to talk more about that. Yeah, I think a couple things really helped just start that flywheel. And and it is just that. Like I think all of these pieces have to work together to create that just kind of ripple effect and momentum that contributes to that growth early on. So we launched in November and went straight into holiday season. So that was kind of the idea, you know, to to have things right out of the gate that would be kind of an anchor and just seasonality, winter pie puzzle time, holiday gifting, you know, people maybe looking for product more. So just kind of the timing around launch was one thing. And that kind of informed the kind of launch PR. So very heavy on going after holiday gift guides and, you know, product lists and roundups and all of that. So that kind of just took us through the first couple of months of trying to hit the holiday demand. And then going into the new year, it was one of those things where thinking about it, as we talked about for four or five years and ended up launching 
four months before surprise, everyone's stuck at home, global pandemic. And I'm like, how could this be? And, you know, on the one hand, it brought a lot of demand and kind of attention to this category, everyone looking for at-home activity, you know, on the other hand, it also brought a lot of supply chain constraints and freight issues. And so there were silver linings, but definitely challenges that came from it. But I think probably the first year, the biggest contributors to growth were press. So from my own background at the skim and just kind of my network, I also brought on a freelancer. So, you know, both product placement type PR of just those gift guides and roundups, and then also more kind of feature narrative, what we're doing, what our mission is, the artists we work with, and really telling the story. And then I think organic, you know, as I mentioned, launching the Skin Ambassador program, really thinking about your audience, you know, as ambassadors for you and how can you incentivize that using user-generated content and reposting and engaging with them on social and asking them to share with friends and family. And so we saw a lot of gifting happening and people, you know, even doing puzzle swaps and trading. And, and so that was great, just kind of energy to see the chatter on social and amongst, amongst friends. And then we did do retail and wholesale in that first year. So small local kind of gift boutiques up to national retailers. Our first exclusive was with Anthropology. So launching in stores And so I definitely think, you know, there's a lot of kind of attention on the direct to consumer space. And I think it is so important to build your email list, build that the relationship you have with your customer when you are doing D2C, but there certainly still is a lot to be said for, for building retail relationships and having partners that can really help you reach that scale. So yeah, I think press, you know, word of mouth referrals, kind of ambassador type initiatives and then retail was really kind of the the formula for year one that that helped us grow. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, your background, you're very familiar with PR and you had a network there and you hired a freelancer. In terms of getting into anthropology, I mean within a year, that's a big placement. How was that relationship developed? Yeah, they reached out to me pretty early on. And I think there are two, you know, these like buyers and they're always kind of scouting new products and fresh brands. And then I've also done outbound and, you know, that's just back to those cold emails, you know, really finding the right contact, probably reaching out to multiple following up and just really being persistent about it. But those relationships, I think really understanding your customer, their customer, you know, what their shopper is looking for, what kind of your value proposition can be for them. And so the meeting with Anthropology, we talked on the phone a few times. I'm in New York, they're headquartered in Philadelphia. So I got a rental car and packed up samples and drove down, had a meeting with their team. And we just talked about 
the anthro woman and what she's looking for. And they really wanted to invest. This was pre-COVID and it only became more of a focus, you know, in the last year and a half, but really home goods and gifting and kind of tabletop. They were already seeing growth in games, recreation category, but also they know that, you know, their shopper, the anthro woman cares about design and she wants any product to look beautiful and curated on her bookshelf and everything. So while they were seeing growth in this games category, they also, the beautiful backgammon set and the, you know, so they were like, anything we do, we know it has to be very design driven. And so showing them our packaging and the artist angle made so much sense and, and made us very aligned And so, yeah, from there, you know, developing the product, we did custom designs for them. So making those selections and, and everything, and then ultimately seeing it in stores on the shelf. Yeah. There's nothing quite like that, that first time walking into a store and seeing your product. So very, very kind of special experience to have them be our first launch. But yeah, I think it really comes down to like any good pitch of what's the value you're offering and how can you help them achieve their goals, which, you know, sales, building their customer relationship. So I think positioning it in those ways has really kind of got us into the doors. Yeah. seems like definitely the right retail partnership for sure. And I'm going to shift gears a little bit. So I know a big focus for you is making sure the unit economics work. You guys were bootstrapped. You were really putting a lot of the profits back in the business, funding the growth. Tell me more about how you landed on Shark Tank. Like, How did that come about? I'd love to hear more about your experience. We actually just had a, another entrepreneur, Lindsay McCormick, the founder of Byte on. And I was fascinated to hear more about what went on behind the scenes. So would love to get your perspective perspective on how all that went down. Yeah, definitely. It was such a whirlwind experience. I mean, I think anything like that is, and then on top of it, it filmed during COVID. So just all of the quarantining and, and the set, they fully rebuilt in Las Vegas. And it was just, it was wild, but there are a couple pads to get on the show. So they have open, you know, casting days. I believe you can do it in person or submit a video. They also similarly to kind of wholesalers have scouts that are always looking, you know, hot new products and brands. And so I ended up getting contacted by them and invited me to submit a video. And so did my best Shark Tank pitch. Then, you know, once you you progress through, help you with the concept of how you want the display to look and how to interact with the sharks sampling your product and all of that. And of course, there's a million things you're trying to juggle of, okay, make the product look beautiful. Okay. Know my numbers, nail, you know, nail the facts. And, and also how am I going to negotiate? What am I willing to take? Where do I also, I just want to be like likable on TV and like, you know, all of these kind of conflicting things that you're trying to balance at the same time. And it's just one take. They, you walk in, they turn the cameras on, that's it. No stopping, no do-overs. And so 
just, I did, you know, I had my friends pretend to be the sharks and, you know, grill me and did a, a bunch of practice rounds and watched maybe every episode there's ever been. <laughs> so really, you know, took it seriously, did kind of the homework, if you will. And then week of, day of, really just tried to enjoy it and have fun and keep the perspective of like this opportunity to share my story, my company, my baby with this panel of sharks and then ultimately with the country and just have fun with it and and be present and enjoy the moment. Yeah, you really nailed it. I mean, you did a great job. So I can tell the preparation definitely helped. But how did you eat? Did you were you nervous or do you think you just prepared so much that when the day came, you were just ready to step into it? I was definitely nervous and I had talked to one founder who had been on the prior season and she said that the thing she didn't realize is like how they can cut it together and that, you know, if facial expressions, they, in her cut, they, they asked a question and they cut to her looking kind of nervous to share the answer. And she's like, wait a minute, that wasn't about that question. That was something. And I was like, oh shoot. So now I have to be like, emotive and expressive (laughs) and show passion for my company, but also not give any too extreme expressions that could be cut. So I definitely was very actively trying to think of all of these things, but it is a long process and you have plenty of preparation time. So by film day, it felt more natural than I might've expected. They actually kind of hide the cameras pretty well, like behind these slates. And so it doesn't feel intrusive, like cameraing your your face. And you can really just start to to fall into this dialogue and have just a, a, a genuine conversation with the sharks. So I was pleasantly surprised at kind of the nerves calming down and really just getting into the conversation in a more natural way. Yeah, no, you definitely could see that. And I know Mark ended up becoming an investor. So he ended up coming in a little bit higher than what you came in for. So he, I believe, gave you 500000 for 15% and matched some of your charitable donations. So how has that partnership been like? How have you really leaned on him and his team in terms of being an investor? Yeah, we're kind of just, just starting, you know, after the show, you basically and like just begin diligence and all of that was so very much ongoing. But I think for me, thinking about an investor, especially being a solo founder, I was really looking for a partner. And I think the the things that feel like such steep learning curves to me for, you know, we've talked about manufacturing and and all that, you know, they're it's not like they've never been done before. I just have never done them yeah. before. So really somebody who has seen it all can really help flatten that learning curve for me, see the vision, help be a sounding board for big picture. I think I've found it difficult at times to preserve that, actually block out the time and energy to get out of the weeds and to big picture. It almost feels like indulgent or like not productive to just like, you know, block off two hours to brainstorm, you know, when the to-do list is only getting longer. So, (laughs) so yeah, I really thought about it that way of who can help be a partner, think strategically with me, get me out of the day-to-day when I need it and also help with the day-to-day of having 
connections and resources and tools and all of that. So yeah, I think it's a big decision. I definitely see both sides of investing, getting investors early, bootstrapping as long as you can, never taking money, you know, taking money, but I think really being clear on what you want out of a partner so that the expectations on both sides make sense. Yes, absolutely. Well, it seems like Mark's a good partner to have and all the things you're looking for in a partner. He definitely has the experience in his team. So I'm sure it's going to be a big value add. And you know, one question I'd love to ask you, the company is a multi-million dollar company at this stage and your team is still quite small. So can you share a little bit more about the makeup of the team and what who really is behind the scenes of Jiggy? Yeah. So I still have no full-time employees. I was truly one woman show for the first year and then started bringing on freelance part-time support. And so I have three part-timers that it really does feel, feel like a team. Each of them, you know, have their own things going on separately. And so we, have really kind of gotten into a good groove though. And so I have someone for just those day-to-day operations, logistics, inventory management, overseeing warehousing, fulfillment, all of that, just keeping it running. And then I have someone for our partnerships, collaborations, things from wholesale to custom projects. And we get a lot of inbound about, you know, creating a custom puzzle and doing collaborations like that. And then I have kind of my right hand, like catch all chief of staff type, any and everything. So yeah, that's the makeup of the team right now. I think my first big full-time hire will be kind of a COO type. You know, my, my background, the most value I can bring to the company is spending my time and energy in sales, marketing, future product, collaborations, you know, content and all of that. So all the keeping the day-to-day running, I'm looking for my right hand there. And then we'll see. Yeah. I think, yeah. It's amazing what a scrappy hungry team can can get done. And so I think a couple full-time hires in 2022 and then taking it from there. I love talking about this because I think, you know, a lot of people have this perception that in order to start a business, you need a big team, you need to raise X amount of money. And I love your story because you are super nimble. You guys are growing and you have a pretty small team that's accomplishing it, right? And you are growing thoughtfully, like you've talked about. So I love, love hearing that. And I want to be mindful of our time together. But one question we actually love to ask all of our guests is, what are you most proud of that a lot of people may not know about you? Mm, That is a great question. I think one of the things that's been so fun to see, so, you know, we work with our artists with baked into the business model that we do percentage of sales. So actually doing that revenue share with them, but a couple of things that I wasn't necessarily, or I didn't predict that have just been so fun to see have been kind of the relationship between the puzzler and the artist in that if you're putting together this puzzle, you're staring at every piece. You have seen every detail of this piece of art, you know? And so they'll reach out to them and tag them on Instagram when they're finished, when they're doing the puzzle and just the kind of intimacy of the relationship that's building 
between the puzzle, our customer and the artist has been really, really special. And then of course, just that profit sharing we do do and being able to really support these artists and kind of take them along for our ride. You know, there was one artist I'm thinking of when we were doing this originals campaign of hand-painted puzzles during the pandemic. And she had just decided to leave her full-time job and really pursue art as her livelihood. And a few months before we started working together, we ended up working together. She paints a puzzle. We're pitching this campaign to press and the next week she's in Vogue. You wow. know, her her painting on our puzzle is featured in Vogue. So I think beyond just how we can support our artists financially, really lifting them up with us and giving them a platform has just, it's been, you know, definitely keeps me going. Yes, I'm sure it's so rewarding to have a mission-based business. I feel like any difficulty you go through, just having that why helps you go through it so much easier. So that is so beautiful to hear. Well, Kaylin, thank you so much for joining us today. This was so much fun. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. I loved our conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.